We're continuing uh, in Acts. Uh, this is a three-part situation here. It began some weeks ago with the miracle of the healing of a lame man and then a sermon, a gospel sermon following that where Peter speaks to the people that were there about um, the salvation of Christ Jesus and thousands of people believe. And as they believe, the spiritual leaders that are there at the temple are jealous of what's happening. And so they go and they arrest Peter and John and hold them overnight and then bring them before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, to uh, threaten them and then release them and expect them to go and do what they've told them to do. And so we're going to see today what these believers, what Peter and John do after this occasion of being threatened before the Sanhedrin. And it's an important lesson for us all living in a non-Christian land. If you think that we still live in a Christian country, you're mistaken. We live in a non-Christian majority country, and we need to have a mindset of what it means to live in a non-Christian country, what it means to be a Christian in a non-Christian place. That's the mindset that we need to have. We're going to learn from these people here today, from the church, as to how we ought to live in that way. Let's stand, please, to honor the Lord as we read his word in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were, against, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May the word of the Lord be blessed. Please be seated. Well, what happens when Peter and John are released from the Sanhedrin, they go back to the church. There, there was no uh, social media back then. They couldn't post anything. They had to get everybody together and talk about this. And they immediately go to gather the church together. Of course, everybody would want to know what, what, ha what was happening. If two of the elders of this church had been arrested and held overnight, we'd immediately call a meeting and talk about what had happened and what we were going to do about it. And it is something very important to see their reaction to the situation. The first thing that they do is they enter into prayer because they have to go and ask God for help in this situation. In a time of threatening, in a time of fear, it is right to pray. It is right to get down on our knees and ask God for help in the situation because it's something that's greater than us, something that is beyond what we are able to handle. And so what happens here at the beginning of this prayer, these are the same disciples that not too long ago asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And when he 
taught them to pray, the very first thing he said to them was, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's, it's the idea of beginning your prayers with honoring the Lord. And so that's how this prayer begins. It begins with a two-part honoring of the Lord in the way in which Jesus had taught them to pray. And so it begins, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign Lord. If you have a King James Version, it, it will read, Lord, thou art God. But the, the, the Lord word there in the King James, which is translated as sovereign in the English Standard Version, the word is despotus, which speaks to unlimited authority and power. In English, despotus or a despot, one with unlimited authority and power, is usually a negative thing because any person given unlimited authority and power is going to be a bad thing. Uh, as Lord Acton used to say, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely because human beings are sinful. But when we put absolute authority and power in the hands of a perfect, almighty, and loving God, a beautiful thing happens. And the Lord our God is sovereign. He has unlimited authority and power over us. He is the sovereign Lord. All things are ruled by God and subject to his will. And we're going to see that this path of prayer that these believers are praying relates to this. Their hope is in this. Because if the situation is out of control and God is not really in control, then they have no hope. But their hope is firmly related to the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God brought together. Because the Lord our God is the potter and we are the clay. That, that illustration is used twice, and it's a beautiful illustration of someone shaping something to create something beautiful out of something that was just a, a raw material beforehand. And so it is with our lives that the Lord is shaping us to be what he would have us to be. But this relates to prayer, because the Lord God in his sovereignty is able to help and to intervene in our situation. Prayer is not just hope or this, this modern day idea of like sending your thoughts to someone else. I'm not quite sure what that means or what that's supposed to mean, but it's not biblical prayer. Biblical prayer is appealing to God who is able to act on behalf of someone else to alter the situation and the circumstances. And God does this all the time in the scriptures. And he, should, he is doing it all the time in the lives of believers. God is able to make the heavens and the earth obey him. And so when we pray and we are asking for God to act, God is able to act. And so they go straight to the next part of this, which is the creator of the world. God is the creator of everything. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I need you to understand that the idea that God is the creator of the world is a continuous theme throughout the Bible. It begins in Genesis chapter 1 and it's carried on all the way through the very end of the scriptures. The God who created the world and began it will also wrap it up and end it according to his time and according to his ways. 
In Genesis chapter 1, I keep this little index. I like to keep my own indexes of things that kind of keep my mind straight. But in Genesis chapter 1, in the margin, I had this long list of every verse that I've come across in the Bible that speaks about God as creator. And it's a very long list because there are so many occasions where the biblical writers speak about God as creator all throughout the Bible. One of my favorite ones is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to take a little bit of a sidelight here to, to read this for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says this, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, which is a direct quotation from Genesis chapter 1, let there be light. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. What is he saying here? He's saying that there was a time when God said, let there be light, and there was physical light in the world. But now has come a time where the Lord says, let there be light in the souls of men and women. And the Lord God shines the light of his glory into your soul that you might come to know him as Savior. And that's really important, folks, because that's what the gospel is about, us going from darkness to light, from death to life, and the Lord God acting in a real way to cause spiritual life in our hearts. If this is just figurative, that God never actually created anything, this is just a, a little bit of symbolism, a little bit of metaphor, well, then what does that say about our salvation? Is it just a little bit of symbolism and a little metaphor and a little help, a little positive thinking? That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that God is in fact the creator and he is also in fact the savior. And just like he created light in the world, he also illumines the soul in a similar but real way. And so every time in the Bible that God is referred to as creator, it speaks to his power, his goodness, his sovereignty, his artistry, all kinds of things are referred to when God is spoken of as creator. And the saints here in Jerusalem are speaking about this. They pray these things to express their hope in the providence and in the power of God to act. This is not metaphor. It's not symbolic. It's not wishful thinking. It is a statement of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 speaks about this. Hebrews 11 is this big long chapter that talks about faith and believing certain things. And sometimes it's overlooked that the first thing that we believe as Christians is that God created the world. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says this. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It's a statement of belief. I understand very well. I cannot prove to you conclusively that God created the world. You will always have to believe it by faith. However, this is not foolishness. Anything that you believe about the origin of the world cannot be proven. It will be a step of faith, whether you choose to believe in some other origin of the world or the biblical account of the origin of the world. And so I have to ask you, as we, I can't just pass by this with these saints having the creation power of God being the foundation of their prayers. Where do you stand on these things? I know this is a great struggle. Where do you stand on the idea that God created the world? If you do not believe in the creation of the Lord, the Lord as the creator of the world, you can't pray like this. And that's, that's, 
That's important. You can't address God as creator as so many of the biblical authors do. You can't have this type of hope in God. Do you believe with confidence that God is in fact the creator of the world? I know that we have a lot of educated people in this congregation, a lot of deep thinking, careful, critical thinking people in this church, and that's fantastic. Sometimes, though, people like that will bypass this doctrine and say this is something that I'm just going to put over here on the table because that can't possibly be true, and I'm just going to kind of go on with my Christianity. I'm telling you this morning that this is, in fact, the foundation of biblical Christianity. If you ignore the idea of God as creator and try to build a Christianity without it, you're not really thinking carefully about your Christianity because eventually it will come back to the reality that, wait, if, if God didn't start this and didn't begin this and these foundations of the scriptures are not in fact true, where does that leave me? And it leaves you on a foundation of sand instead of upon the foundation of the Lord. And so I need you to see that early Christians started their prayers in desperate times with the understanding that God is our creator and that he is sovereign, and it gave them hope. Well, they go from honoring the Lord in this way in the beginning of their prayer to the quotation of Scripture. Uh, it may be interesting to you that in the book of Acts, we've already hit quotations from the Psalms many times. I don't know if you read the Psalms very often as you read through the Scriptures, but you should. The Psalms are very rich. And this morning, we have the church quoting from Psalm chapter 2. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? Uh, I'm going to read for you Psalm chapter 2. I'm sorry, Psalm 2, because uh, it's not too long and it's very important. So, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A very powerful psalm, uh, an interesting psalm. It begins with the, the nations plotting against the Lord. Now, this is the setting of this is... King David, David is anointed as king and he has so many enemies to overcome and they all are plotting against him and he is struggling against them. But he is struggling with the understanding that the Lord is enthroned on high and that he is God's representative in that time. But these nations that plot against the Lord, they plot to undo him and the Lord laughs at them. That's, a, that's, a really, that's kind of a shocking thing. When you read through that, you don't expect to see that there. Uh, you, a lot of different things, but it conveys at least the Lord is not worried about this. He, he is not stressing over the wickedness of the world. That he laughs at the idea that anyone would undo his authority in the world. 
But then it gets to some powerful judgment language, judging the world with a rod of iron, uh, a, a ruthless, merciless crushing of the enemies of the Lord. And yet it ends, as so many of the Psalms do, with bringing us back to the Lord. So you can go one of two ways. You can either live as an enemy of God and rage against him and be destroyed in your rage as you struggle against the Lord, or you can draw near to him. And as it says in the final verse of Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you come to him, you will find him merciful and kind and gracious and welcoming. And this is the gospel message that all those who hear the Lord may come to him and be forgiven of their sins. But as we see here, there are enemies of the Lord, enemies that gathered up together and thought that the more of them gathered together, they would be able to undo the plan of the Lord and destroy Jesus. But it's not so. It never has been. There have been enemies against all the, the leaders of God's people down through the ages, and Israel and now the church has never been undone, and it never will be. No wicked leader will ever be able to crush the church, no matter how much religious liberty may be squeezed out in this or other countries, there will always be Christians that rise up according to the will of the Lord. It will always be that way. And so it is that the early believers look to Psalm 2 for strength and promise when it comes to them facing this uh, Sanhedrin. Remember, like all the most important and powerful people of this city are arraigned against them. And they have no pack group behind them. They have no denomination with thousands and thousands of churches. They have no lobbyist in Jerusalem. They don't even have an attorney. It's just the two of them and the Holy Spirit standing before the Sanhedrin on the promises of God and his word. And that's powerful. And that's enough. And that's important for us to see here this morning. The lesson of Psalm 2 that these believers are praying about and bringing out is that the wicked will never overcome Jesus. Those who are against him and rage against him, they will never overcome Jesus. And they go to verses 27 and 28 to illustrate that and to help understand and then pray truth about this. It talks about in verse 27, the enemies, those who are against the Lord and against his anointed, gathered together. And so you have Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel. They just list the cast of characters. But then verse 28 is very unexpected. Because it says in verse 27, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Those two things don't seem to go together. They came because they hated Jesus and they literally wanted to kill him and be rid of him. But they also came unknowingly to do the will of the Lord. And that's something that you have to spend some time thinking about. And we're going to take a, talk a little bit about this this morning because it's very important. They were doing what they chose to do. They, do, they were doing what they thought was going to undo Christ Jesus. But what they were actually doing is what the hand and the plan of the Lord had predestined to take place. This goes back to the beginning of this prayer. God governs and guides all things according to his secret counsel and purposes. These, these believers, as they pray, didn't know the specific nature of the Lord for the future, for their tomorrow, any more than you and I do. We don't know what tomorrow holds for us. 
But we do know that God directs tomorrow and that it is not going to surprise him that he is purposefully causing things to come together according to his purposes. The Lord God brings to pass all those things according to the determination of his will. This is called providence. Uh, John Piper, a couple of years ago, wrote a massive book on providence. I I have not read it yet. I'm I'm working through it, but it's going to take me a long time. But I have read at least the beginning of it. And uh, providence is something worth thinking about and worth taking time to work through in your own mind. And I like his definition of it. He says that the providence of God is the purposeful actions of God governing and upholding the world. The purposeful actions of God governing and upholding the world. So providence comes after sovereignty. Sovereignty is the right to act and the power to act. But providence is the purposeful plans and actions that come out of that authority and power. And so God in his authority and power is not arbitrarily acting in the world. He has a plan and he has purposes. And those things, as it says here in this scripture and many others, are predetermined. And this goes beyond foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is a different word in the scriptures. It means that God knows things beforehand. And that is certainly true. He does know things beforehand. But he does not just know what is going to happen but he is actually causing those things to happen, which is the nature of this word. It goes beyond foreknowledge to causation. The Lord God is the cause of the things that are happening. And this goes back to why are they praying to God? They're not praying to God hoping that something might happen that he knows about. They're praying and acting, asking for him to act by his power and authority according to his purposes. Now, there is much mystery here, but for those that are in Christ, these praying disciples, this is cause for hope and joy and boldness. There is a promise in the scriptures that is often misquoted, but should be something that is held dear to us as Christians, because it takes these things and sort of brings them together in focus. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So this is a promise to those in Christ that the things of this world, the infinite number of details and and interactions in your day, God is causing, not just knowing, but causing these things to work together for the good of those who love the Lord according to his purpose purposes. This goes back to providence. This is not arbitrary. This is not just tumbling forward. This is God working out his good purposes in the world for his glory and for our good. For those who are in Christ, God's sovereignty, God's creation power, God's hand in accomplishing his will is cause for us to hope and cause for us to rejoice. God is at work. Our salvation and our ultimate good, the the real striving of the wicked, will not derail the purposes of God. That is what is the focus of this prayer in Acts chapter 4. That because of all these things we've talked about here this morning, this gathered group of persecuted Christians have hope that the purposes of God will not be derailed because of the sovereignty, the providence, the goodness, the creation power of God. All these things will come together 
together to have them not be destroyed. And that is the focus of their prayers. But we need to be very careful that in looking at these things and considering these things, we don't fall over into something called fatalism. Uh, fatalism is the idea that whatever will be, will be. It's just sort of, let's just, things are just going to happen and I'm just kind of caught in the flow of this river and it's just going to be. It's, I, I can't change anything, I can't help anything. Charles Spurgeon spoke about this and I like his quotes, so I'm going I'm to quote him here. Uh, but there is a difference between fate and providence. Providence says whatever God ordains must be, but the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some uh, one great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that the thing must be. Providence says God moves the wheels along and there they are. So the idea that God ordains things for a purpose and according to his will and according to his knowledge and his goodness and character. God's potential hand, I'm sorry, God's providential hand is at work in great things, national level things, but God's hand is also at work in personal issues of your life. God knows your name. God knows what is happening in your life. All the way down to very particular details. When I'm thinking about this sermon and preparing this, I couldn't, couldn't get past a time in my life when early in my career, I really wanted a different position. And we were ready to get out of the town that we were in. And I just wanted to get our family to a different place. And I put in an application for a particular group. And I took it to my supervisor, an unbeliever, and said, you know, here, I've done a very good job for this person and expected to have no problem with this. And she took that and literally tore it in half and threw it in the trash can right in front of me. And I was like, what is, what? And she said, this is not good for you. This is not a good direction for your career. You can, you can do better than this. You need to keep working and wait. And I mean, I was not happy about that when that happened. But I'll tell you plainly, I would not be standing here if it had not been for that particular occasion. If I had gotten that position and gone in that direction, we would not be standing here today. God in his providence directed my path. And every single one of you here in Christ can think of times where your path of your life was directed in a way that was beyond what you expected, planned, or intended, but it was part of God's goodness to direct your life to where he would have for you to be. And this is what these believers are talking about. This is what they're praying about. They're asking for the Lord to watch over them according to his power. To get us back on track here, Psalm 2 speaks about the wicked never overcoming the Lord and his purposes. The wicked did not overcome Jesus, and the wicked did not overcome these disciples and their purposes to go out and preach the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of Christ Jesus through grace and by faith. And the wicked will not overcome the godly in our day either. This is recorded here in scripture for our encouragement, for our direction, but also for our encouragement. Why? Because of the sovereign power and the providential purposes of God. To preserve the church and to save a people for himself and for his glory. The Lord has been at work in this way and he will continue at work in this way until he comes again. Just like he created the world, he will judge the world. And so in verse 29, all of these things, they're no easier to proclaim back then than they are to proclaim now. 
And so the summary prayer of these brothers and sisters is for boldness in these things. Because they have been commissioned by the risen Jesus to go out and make disciples in all the world. To go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus. The divinity of Jesus. The grace of Jesus. That more people might come to salvation. And they're sent out as missionaries to all the ends of the earth. And it was no easier to talk about Jesus then than it is to talk about Jesus now. And so they have just come off the hot heels of being threatened. And there's an interesting grinding or, or a collision of threats and boldness. So they've just been threatened, and without boldness, they're going to be run over by those threats. And if you've ever been threatened by someone in a real way, it, it it, you know, you can literally start shaking like, oh man, like what am I going to do here? Is this, am I going to get out of the way and get run over or am I going to come back in boldness? And so they are asking the Lord God for boldness. Look upon their threats, it says in verse 29. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And as it happens, the Lord uh, to, get, to get also in verse 30, to continue on with these miraculous things that are uh, showing that they are in fact following in the ministry of Jesus. And after they had finished this prayer, verse 31, the place where they are gathered was shaken. There's nothing special about the place being shaken, but what it shows is a token of the Lord expressing his nearness to them in a way that they really understood the nearness and the filling of God's spirit. It's unmistakable, a, a, a point of encouragement for them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this in weeks past, and we're going to continue to talk about it. They will have no boldness, no power, no strength to do the work of the Lord without the filling of the Holy Spirit in their life. And so God answers their prayer by giving them an extra measure of his spirit to be able to go out in his way and in his, uh, by his means to go and do his will. And they go on and they continue to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. I think in looking at this passage, it's important to define and, and, and try to parse the difference between boldness and militancy. There's a lot of militant people in our day and age that are not Christ-like in their attitude. So there's a difference between boldness and being militant. To be bold is to be filled with courage and confidence. Courage and confidence towards a certain end. To be militant is to be combative and aggressive. One is trying to make a point to say something, and you will not be cowed. You will say what is being said, and it's for a good purpose and a good end. For us as Christians, it's to declare someone the gospel, that they might know who Jesus Christ is. The boldness we'll get to in just a moment. But the, the militant person is trying to win a fight. They may even be picking a fight in order to win that fight. But they see the person across from them not as someone that they are trying to win, but as someone that they want to defeat. I need to be abundantly clear to you. Jesus has not sent us out on jihad. We are not out attacking the world to conquer it. That is Islam. 
We are out to make disciples in the world, to win the hearts of those who are around us, to persuade them to believe in Jesus. Our hope that they will be persuaded resides in God. It is our role to be the means by which the gospel goes out, the means by which the truth is spoken to people. And in a real way, we are trying to persuade people that they need to know Christ as their Savior. But the boldness comes in when we speak to people about their sin. It does not take boldness to go and affirm people where they already are. That's just a pat on the back. It does not take any boldness to say, well, just add God, a little bit of God to what you already have. It takes no boldness to do that. That's not the nature of any of the preaching that we see in the book of Acts. The bold preaching in the book of Acts always begins with speaking to people about their sin. You are a sinner, and you're under the condemnation of the Lord, and you need to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ that you might be forgiven of your sins. And every single one of us understand that it takes boldness, not militancy, but Christ-honoring, good-hearted, spirit-filled boldness to talk to a person about their sin. It's hard to talk to somebody about their sin. But when you do it, it opens up the door for a person to come to salvation. The Holy Spirit uses it to convict them of where they are, that there might be change. And so boldness speaks against sin. Boldness tells unpopular truth. It holds Christian positions against worldly force. Let me close with this. I think there are three basic issues in our day and age that will require our spirit-filled boldness. Why we need to take the lessons of this passage and ourselves pray to the sovereign Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, that he would fill us with his spirit to give us boldness that we might not fail in our day and age. Uh, First is the exclusivity of the gospel. We talked about that last week. That one never changes. The idea that Jesus is the only way to salvation will never be a popular idea with this world. And it will take boldness to say that. Second has to do with sexual ethics. That is the issue of our time. I think it will remain the issue of our time for my entire ministry. That the Lord God has said that sexual acts are moral acts. They have a moral character to them. That God has defined what marriage is. That God creates uh, according to his purposes, he gives people gender. He ordains the gender of their life. And that we walk in that according to what God has planned for our life. These things all roll together. But our culture in its great rebellion against God has cast all these things off. And it will take boldness. And I encourage you to be careful on the line of militancy. Have compassion. Have the care of Christ. Have the love of Christ in your heart. But do not back off of telling people the truth. And I think third is the issue of unlimited government. And it comes directly into what we're talking about here today. There can be only one seat of unlimited authority and power. And if government has the seat of unlimited authority and power, then government is delegating authority to the church. But that's not what we see in the scriptures. In the scriptures, we see that God is almighty. He is the one with unlimited authority and power. And he delegates power to governing authorities that they might then bring order to societies. And any government that loses sight of its delegated authority from God will crush religious liberty 
and other liberties that ought to be had for those who understand that their life is lived under the ultimate authority of God. I think all three of these things will require boldness on our behalf as Christians to speak against and that we will only be able to do this by the power of God's Holy Spirit as he fills us up. May you hear the gospel this morning. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, that you would believe in him today and that you would come to salvation, that these great and precious promises might apply to you and that you might come into the church and understand what it means to live in hope in the forgiveness of your sins through the grace and the peace of Christ Jesus our Lord. May we as Christians stand squarely on the hope and the power and the authority of God's word and that we would not be moved from that, that we would keep our fixed eye on the Lord Jesus and in prayer we would hope in him. Let's pray for boldness and that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit.